John chapter 3. Titled this morning's message is Life Beyond the Walking Dead. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray you would send your wind to blow this morning as we hear your word preached, as we read it, as we seek to appropriate it in our own lives. Lord, we realize we we need you to engage your holy word. We need the Spirit of God to come. And so we, we open our hearts and we ask you to move among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He came to Jesus by night, sneaking through the shadows of Jerusalem's back streets. He wanted to remain unseen, unexposed, unaccountable. His name was Nicodemus. And he was one of the walking dead. Though, to be fair, he didn't yet know he had been infected. Facts on the virus are pretty straightforward. The virus was congenital, which means one had it from birth. It was a, the virus was fatal, which means it brought death with it. And the virus was otherwise known as sin. As a religious man, Nicodemus probably assumed that he could not be infected by the virus. I mean, this is a guy who was a Pharisee. And not just a Pharisee, but he was one of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the ruling elite, an aristocrat. This meant he had every advantage from birth. This meant he had every credential available to him. His righteousness was intact. 
His place in heaven was secure. He had pedigree. He had circumcision. He had education. He had orthodoxy. He had affiliation. He had position. We're talking about, about a guy that was a conscientious lawkeeper. This was one impressive specimen. If anyone could have assumed that he had been inoculated against this particular virus of sin, it would be this man. And he kind of brings that into his greeting with Jesus. Rabbi, he says, we know something about you. We know that you are a teacher from God, because nobody could do these signs unless God is truly with them. And Jesus kind of sidesteps his comment and immediately begins to read his mail. Jesus turns the table and actually exposes the true identity of Nicodemus, that he wasn't simply a Pharisee or a Sanhedrin or a ruling elder or a man who had all of these advantages. He informs Nicodemus that he is one of the walking dead. And there's only one cure for that. You need new Life. That this virus is so bad that it corrupts the soul. This virus is so bad that it seizes control of the will. The virus is so bad that it determines one's path and ultimately determines one's destiny. And there's only one antidote. And that is one needs to be born of the water and of the Spirit in a way that, like the wind, you can't see, you can't perceive, you can't always understand. The remedy is this. He must be born again. Now, keep in mind that this is a story that is preserved in Scripture, not because Nicodemus is the only one infected. In fact, here in this story, Nicodemus represents us all, and we must read us all into this passage. I have to admit that I, I feel the enormity of this passage in a unique way because I stand here aware that, that if we get this right, that it affects everything. It affects our connection to God. It affects the authority we live by. It affects the quality of our life. It affects where we go after we die. And if we get this wrong, then, then we could be just like Nicodemus at this stage in his life. Impressively religious, incredibly moral, spectacularly affirmed by the community around us, even perceptive to the things of God, even aware that Jesus is doing some significant signs from God, but unable to see that we are dead. We're the walking dead. You know, one of the dangers to the church today is false conversion. It's folks that attend church assuming that they're alive when they're really one of the walking dead. And I think I felt the enormity of this message because I think hanging in the balance, anytime you preach from John chapter 3 are souls, perhaps souls that are here today. So please, please pay careful attention to this passage. This text raises one basic question. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean for Nicodemus to be born again? What does it mean for me to be born again? And my answer to that question comes in a statement, a statement that forms the outline of today's message. That being born again means 
God implanting new life in sinners, creating an appetite for Jesus. God implanting new life in the walking dead, new life in sinners, creating an appetite for Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to look at how that statement comes from the text and maps onto the text, and we're going to walk right through it, but we're going to begin in the middle in the idea of it's God implanting new life in sinners, in this category of individual, in sinners. So Nicodemus arrives in front of Jesus like all of us, like, well, like most of us, let's say, living, living in the Bible belt of Jerusalem, upstanding citizen, decent guy. As a Pharisee, he certainly knew the existence of sin. He understood the existence of sin. He understood it theologically. He just saw it so much clearer in other people, probably. By the way, that's, that's what religion kind of does to, to you. It, you know, it kind of owns the idea of sin. It agrees with the idea of sin. You just never see it within. It's always something that's outside of us. It's always something in other people. So Nicodemus is one of these guys that saw himself as, you know, basically good. I'm basically a good guy. Definitely in line for heaven, not anywhere near the queue that's lined up for hell. And I'm just living a good life. And he comes to Jesus, arrives in front of Jesus, stands before Jesus in that state with that mindset. And out of love, Jesus then delivers to him the bad news. He says, Nicodemus, you are one of the walking dead. In other words, there's got to be something that happens within you that comes from outside of you that changes you. You must be reborn. You must come alive. You must be born again. Those are radical words for a moral man to hear. Those are radical words for any man or woman to hear. And in fact, Paul's, the Apostle Paul is even more direct about the walking dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is, it, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's talking about the walking dead. He's talking about sinners. What does that, what does that mean when we use that word sinners? What is, it, what is it the heart of that word as it's used and as it unfolds here in John chapter 3? Well, there's two ideas that I think come up with the idea of a person apart from Christ as sinner. First, it means that we are spiritually dead. I think Paul says it to the Ephesians probably best. And you were dead in, our, in your trespass and sin. And that describes Nicodemus in John, John chapter 3 as well. In fact, Nicodemus is used in John chapter 3 intentionally. I believe he's chosen intentionally because of his morality, because of his religious 
credibility, because he was a Pharisee, because he was a Sanhedrin. This is a dude that spent a lot of time studying Scripture. This is a guy that tried to get things right. He was a law keeper, but even all of his religiosity could not save him. It could not move him closer to God. He was still spiritually dead. See, so many people think that coming to Je- in order to come to Jesus, you've got to basically prepare yourself by becoming more like Nicodemus. We can aspire to be more like this man because, he's, as I mentioned earlier, he's quite the specimen. He's quite the moral man. He's quite the father, quite the principled individual. And so we think that in order to come to Jesus, what we really have to do is we have to improve our life that we might be able to present to Jesus a far better specimen of ourselves, a far, far better rendition of ourselves than we presently have. Like coming to Jesus is like, like getting a license down at the Department of Transportation. You know, you've got to go. You have to have your valid birth certificate. You've got to have your proof of residence. You've got to have an updated photo ID. And, and you stand there in line with everybody else. You're behind, and then you're moving forward. And if you have everything in order, if you, if you get everything stamped correctly, then you are approved, and you can get what you need. Then you are approved, and you can get what you want. But what we're learning in John chapter 3 is Nicodemus is a man that had everything in order. He knew his Bible. He prayed often. He was a principal man, and yet he still needs to be born again because he's still legally guilty before God. He still has to, he still stands in moral rebellion before God. He needed a new life in order to see God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Listen, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're waiting to kind of clean up your life you know, buff it until it shines like a clear polish before God, and he's amazed at what you've been able to produce, and you can present yourself to him, and he can say, finally, you're ready to receive me. We're not getting the point of John chapter 3. Forget it. It's not possible. You can never buff that much in order to become presentable before God. Jesus said, Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus came to call the walking dead. So it means we're spiritually dead. But it also means a second thing, to be called a sinner apart from Christ. Not only means that we're spiritually dead, it also means we're spiritually blind. We can't can't see Jesus for who he is, and we can't understand exactly what he's about. See, Nicodemus was like that. He saw the power of Christ. He saw the evidence of divine activity when he presented himself in John chapter 3, verse 2. He said, we know you are a teacher. We know you've come from God. We know we see these signs that you've done. We connect these signs with God. There was some activity going on there. There were some connections that he could make. But Jesus, even with those connections, even even being able to perceive the activity of God, Jesus still comes right out of the gate and says to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. 
Jesus says, Nicodemus, I know you've seen power. I know you've seen me. I know you've seen your Bible. By the way, Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. Verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? In saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again, Jesus is saying, you should understand this, Nicodemus. You are a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus didn't see it, though. Why? Because he needed to be born again. See, the walking dead are spiritually blind. Of course they're blind. They're dead. If I dragged a cadaver into an optometrist's office and I asked them to read from line three, I would get no response. I might say, okay, we'll read from line two because that's a little easier. No response. Read from the top line, the big E right in the middle. Read that. No response. Why? Because they're dead. They're dead. To be a sinner means that we are spiritually dead and spiritually blind. Okay? So it means God implanting new life in a sinner. Now let's back up a little bit and go to what it means for God to implant new life. It's God implanting new life. See, for Nicodemus, he was religious. He was obedient. He was a law keeper. He was moral. But that couldn't help him because those things could not supply to him the power that he needed to change himself. It called him to something but did not supply the power to be able to obey what it called him to. And altering his behavior couldn't do it. Changing his rituals, changing his churches and running to another one, couldn't do it. Jesus said, Nicodemus, it's actually far more fundamental than that. It's far more basic than that. You must be born again. That's how it happens. That's how the power comes. See, when someone is born again, it means that God gives them what they can't manufacture themselves. And this is what God gives them. He gives them a new heart with new power to choose God and choose good. That's what he does. He gives us a new heart with new power to choose God and choose good. And here's the thing. God implants it. Now, don't be, don't be put off by that word. That, that's just a theological word that means God installed, that God installs this inside of us. And this was always necessary. This was something that the whole Old Testament pointed to. The Old Testament, the law, those things uncovered the reality that there is a law that we fall short of. There's a law that we must follow, but we don't have the power to follow it. But there's a day coming when God is going to act. God is going to work. He's going to give us a new heart. And with that new heart would come new power to be able to follow God and obey God. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 to 27. This is one of the promises that comes in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Jesus in the coming of the Spirit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God takes the stony heart out. He replaces it with a heart of flesh. 
and he causes us to walk in his statutes. In other words, he installs a new heart. And what does that new heart have? That new heart has new power. He installs a new heart with new power that wants to follow the Savior, that wants to follow God. But there's power to do it. Have you ever had your lights go off and you reach for a flashlight? Maybe yesterday during that storm, I mean, lights were going out all over the place. You reach for a flashlight with old batteries in them and you try to turn it on and, and it's, it's off, it doesn't work, and you open up the back and you pull it out and the batteries are all corroded and messy, incapable of delivering any power to the flashlight. You can't turn it on because it's dead. You can't light it up because it's dead. See, being born again is God reaching in, removing those corroded batteries, that corroded heart, with all of its pollution and all of its sin and all of its corruption and all of its shame and lying, God reaching in and pulling out that heart and installing new batteries, installing a new heart capable of lighting the way towards God so that we can see him more clearly, so that we can, according to verse 3, see the kingdom of God. Piper says, in the new birth, our dead, stony boredom with Christ is replaced by a heart that senses the worth of Jesus. So God reaches in, he pulls out that which doesn't resonate with Jesus, and he puts in a heart that has a kind of sonar, a homing beacon that's cued or keyed to God, and it's always moving toward God, always longing for God, always desiring God. Because apart from that new heart, we can't get to God. We can't desire God. Listen, the walking dead can't select God. They can't choose God. Because our sinfulness, our fallenness, kills our capacity to choose. That's part of what happens. It kills our capacity to choose. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were once dead in the trespasses and sins. Think about it this way. If someone is morally dead... How are they capable of making moral decisions? If someone is morally dead, how are they capable of choosing God, choosing good? It's like taking your dead uncle to pick out his own casket. You'd sit, you stand him there, you say, okay, uncle, what do you want? Do you want oak? Do you want mahogany? Do you want black? Do you want burgundy? What is it? Because these are the times we've got to make decisions, and you hear nothing because he's dead. In fact, I want to suggest to you that if someone were able to make a decision in that moment, I submit they might not be dead. The fact that they're dead means they can't make those decisions. Now, there are Christians that believe that you can be partially dead, that, that, meaning that the fall resulted in man being, men and women being almost dead. Dead enough to need God, but not so dead that they can't choose God. Dead enough to need God, but not so dead they can't choose God. So, so you, know, you know, like Billy Crystal in Princess Bride, where he says, he's not dead, he's mostly dead. And mostly dead is partially alive. It's partly alive. Jesus doesn't, doesn't give us that option. He says something is dead, it needs new life. It needs to be born 
again. And the reason it's important to use and think through the biblical categories and use the biblical terms is that what we believe by, about how far we've fallen reveals what kind of Savior we really need. You know, if we have just fell, fallen a little bit, then we don't need a big Savior. We need a functional Savior that will basically help us do a little better on our test tomorrow or help us improve our communication with our roommate or help me in my marriage a little bit. But I haven't fallen that far, so my Savior is small. What we believe about how far we've fallen reveals what kind of Savior we need. Do we, do we need a Savior who's basically left us enough good to be able to choose him? You know, like an insurance co-op, insurance company pays for most of it, but we've got to chip in our little bit. You know, we kind of have that, that, that way of approaching God. Well, God will do most of it, but I've just got, to, I've got enough to chip. I've got my 10% I have to chip in. See, that's not how Jesus approaches it. Jesus says, it's so bad, we need a brand new heart. If, if Jesus were standing here, he'd be saying, hey, the bad news is the old heart, like your car, it's totaled. It's totaled completely. It can't choose anything. In fact, we're going to scrap it. And I'm going to provide for you a brand new car. I'm going to provide for you a new heart and, and churning in that new heart, pulsating in that new heart, are new desires for me, and I'm installing all of that into your life. And here's the thing. You can't contribute anything. It's grace, and I love you, and I'm giving this to you. And there's a second reason. You can't contribute anything because I know you humans, and whatever you contribute to, you boast in. Whatever you contribute to, you immediately take pride in that. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9. By grace you have been saved. It's just not of your own works. It's a gift of God, not of anything we've done, so that we may not boast. See, we needed a new heart because being given a new heart is what makes us capable of responding to God, capable of making a spiritual decision. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God gives us His Spirit. He gives us a new heart. And then all of a sudden, we're resonating on a spiritual level. I mean, we got game on that level all of a sudden. So when God causes us to be born again, what He does is He awakens saving faith in the new heart that He has given us. He puts those things on, poof, and all of a sudden, there's new life in that new heart. 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Not will be born of God, has been born of God. In other words, first we're given a new heart, then we profess. First we're given a new heart, first we're born again, and then we confess Jesus Christ. So it's God implanting new life, new life in sinners, and then finally, creating an appetite for Jesus. Creating an appetite. And this is really important because, because in giving us a new heart, God is not just giving us the ability to choose him. It's not just that. I mean, that would be great, but it's not as if God says, okay, you got your new heart, now I'm heading out. But no, he, he gives us a new heart, and then he, the Spirit of God comes, creating a hunger 
for God within that new heart, creating an appetite, which Nicodemus couldn't get. Even Nicodemus, with all of his Bible study, all of his religious meetings, could not produce desire for God. He needed something else. He needed to be born again. And unless we are born again, our desires remain keyed to the enemy and keyed to the world. Again, back to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the, the third verse that we read earlier. Among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So Paul describes the walking dead like this. He says they're following the course of the world. They're following the prince of air. They're living in the passions of their flesh. They're carrying out the desires of the body. And all of that comes with birth. All of that comes with the, you know, with the birth package. Which is why, by the way, you never have to train kids to misbehave, do you? You know, they come wired to do that. You never have to train your kids to say no because they're, they're wired from birth to say no. What you have to train them into is yes. Everybody, every kid comes equipped with the no gene. It's part of their DNA. Born with desires that are keyed to the world. Born with the desires that are keyed to the world's corruption. Paul goes as far to say that we are by children, by nature, children of wrath, which is just another way to say we are the walking dead apart from Jesus. So what does he do? He says, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to set you up for. I'm going to give you a new heart, and that new heart is going to pulse with new things, and those new things are new desires that are directed towards me. New desires that will reroute your whole direction in life. New heart that brings new desires that will take you in a new direction and will begin to move you each and every day towards me. It'll drive you in a certain direction. About 18 months ago, I was driving my car in the Philadelphia area. I was driving at about 35 miles per hour. It was a 25 mile per hour speed, uh, speeding zone, so I was, I was following the obligatory law of going 10 miles per hour, which is obligatory in the Northeast for the speed limit. And the tie rod on my car broke. Now, if you don't know what a tie rod is, I, I didn't know what it was either until I had to pay for it. Uh, so it's called a tie rod because it ties the steering rack to the steering arm, which all of that means that when it breaks, <laughs> the term defensive driving takes on a whole new meaning because all of a sudden you, you have no control over the steering wheel. Now, I'm driving down the road at 35 miles per hour, and it breaks, and my tire pops off. It's heading down the other side of the road. I thought, think, isn't that curious? There's my tire. My car tips over and begins to drag along the street by the axle. I have no way to steer it, and the brakes fail. So I've got, I, I've got no way to steer the car, no brakes. I'm, I'm about to lose the Ability to control my bladder as well, because it's very frightening. I've got no control over the direction whatsoever. 
It's, it's tipped over on the road, and it eventually comes to a stop because the axle is driving along, or dragging along the road. And the analogy I want to draw there is, is sin breaks our tie rod. Sin breaks our tie rod so that we can't steer in keeping with our will. I wanted to go that way. I couldn't go that way. The tie rod was broken. I had to go this way. The car had a momentum that way. And what God does is he comes along and he implants a new tie rod so that our hearts are able to move towards him. Listen to the words of Dane Ortland from the book I recommended earlier. He said, quote, Truly born again people do not obey against their will, summoning themselves to duty against all their desires. The very definition of a Christian is one who finds one's will essentially changed such that the desires of the heart delight in, not compete against the commands of God. Jesus said it in a much simpler way. He said, you must be born again. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to something. Because earlier I said that the Spirit of God creates a hunger in us. But I want to talk a little bit more specifically about how that works. When the Spirit of God acts upon the heart and brings a new heart, part of what comes with that new heart are new affections for God. So conversion creates affections. Conversion puts a love in us that hadn't been in us prior and creates this affection. And the point I want to make about that is, in other words, the Spirit of God doesn't just bring a new way of thinking about God or thinking about God's people or thinking about life. The Spirit comes bringing a new way of loving, of affections that result sometimes in feelings See, whether you know this or not about yourself, you are first and foremost a creature of desire. So we're in this series on desire. We started out the series by talking about being wired for glory, that, that there is this instinct that God has put in all of us for glory, which is another way to say to desire things. And we talked about how you pursue what you desire. We learned last week that the heart is active, that it's always pulsing with desire. Desires for good, desires for evil. And it's really important that we understand, we understand ourselves first as people of desire, as creatures of desire, because we like to present ourselves, this is particularly, particularly with guys, we like to present ourselves as if we are driven by ideas and knowledge, as if we are wired first for thinking, which doesn't mean we don't think, but we're not wired first for thinking, we're wired first for desire, because at the heart of life is this desire pump that can never be turned off. It's always churning out new things, always churning out new affections, new loves, new cravings, new desires, where we are daily lured by our loves more than motivated by our mind. And you know who gets this? You know who's really perceptive of this, shrewd as serpents about this? It's the world of marketing. Marketing understands this. Marketing does not sell us on what we, how we should think about something. Marketing sells us on what we are to desire. You think Starbucks, Starbucks is, is not trafficking in ideas when it comes to their product. They are selling a vision of the good life where we flourish because we pay $5 for a cup of coffee. 
Here's the point I'm trying to make. In conversion, the spirit, the wind, to use the words of John, blows to reorder those desires so that they are moving towards God. And in a conversion, when somebody gives their life to Jesus and God acts upon them, God incites affections for himself. And you know who got this really clearly? It was, it was Jonathan Edwards. That, that was his whole idea, is that, is that religion places affections at the center of, of the heart. In fact, I brought a quote from him where he said, quote, the scripture places religion very much in the affection of love, in love to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and love to the people of God and to mankind. So a good way to evaluate oneself as to whether we are born of the Spirit, whether we are not the walking dead, is to examine our affections for God. Do we find that as we're open and honest, got level honest before God, do we find that we have this growing appetite for Jesus, that we are hungering for his word, that we are thirsting to be with him more, thirsting to understand him better. Because those desires are an appetite from God that are there because we are called to feed them. See, that's why I love that, that idea, that word appetite, because an appetite is an instinct that we're born with, but we must feed it for it to be satisfied. We must feed it for us to grow healthy. So do you grow by feeding your appetite for God? Do you feel an appetite for God today? If you're sitting here, would you say, you know what, as, he's, as Dave's describing this, I, I don't think I've ever felt that way. Maybe there's a bigger question that God is raising with you today. And I mentioned that a little earlier. Earlier I, I spoke about the weight of this passage, the weight of this message. And, and honestly, I feel it would be almost be a crime to not speak today to those that are here that don't know Jesus Christ, those that are the walking dead. And maybe you're here because you know some other Christians. And in fact, you, you know Christians and you just don't get why they get so excited about Jesus. And there's part of that experience where as you observe it, you think, you know, there's part of that that irritates me, but there's another part of that that I'm just envious of because I don't feel that way about anything. And I certainly don't feel passionate about God. There's part of me that thinks, yeah, there, there must be a God up there somewhere, but I don't get it. I'm not connected with him. And I don't understand how they get it. Well, I hope the answer is now a little clearer. And the answer is that it's, it's not us at all. God has given us a new heart, and that new heart desires him. That new heart hungers for him. You say, well, that, that's great. How do I get one of those? How do I get one of those new hearts? Well, there's a great passage a little further down in John chapter 3 where Jesus says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, it takes no more than just recognizing that you need a Savior, admitting you are a sinner, believing that Jesus is 
who he said he was and can do what he said he did and confessing that sin to God and asking for his mercy. It, it's really very simple. And you know what? The majority of people in this room have taken that step and their lives have been transformed as a result. But if you think it's come for us because we're better than you or more moral than you or lived a better life than you, then we're all missing the entire point of John chapter 3. We were a mess. We needed something from outside of ourselves. We needed a power from God which could only come from a new heart that God would get us. And that's my prayer for you. My, my prayer for you is that the Spirit will move upon you because the Spirit of God delights in doing that. And that Spirit brings new life. And his, the Spirit, he, he moves in unpredictable ways and in unique ways. In fact, that's, that's what verse 8 means. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. Basically, John is saying, God is saying, the Spirit's like the wind. The wind is invisible. The wind is unpredictable. The wind is incomprehensible. We don't see his work. We don't see the work of the wind, but we feel its effects. We don't see the work of the Spirit all the time, but we feel, we experience the effects of the Spirit. So C.S. Lewis is converted while he's riding in a sidecar on his brother's motorcycle on the way to the zoo. He basically says, when I set out I didn't believe in Jesus, and I didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. Fifteen minutes later, when I arrived at the zoo, I believed. God gave him a new heart. Therefore, he believed. He didn't do anything. There was no religious exercise in that 15 minutes that he, that he engaged in that allowed him to take that big step. God moved. In other words, the Spirit of God moved. In other words, the wind blew. Maybe you sense the wind blowing today. God drawing you to himself today. Maybe you're like Nicodemus. You're, you're a religious kind of person. You know, you talk about Christ and you're known to be religious and you're a moral person. But maybe you see in a whole new way that you are the walking dead. Or maybe you're far from God and you haven't seen God in years and you don't really honestly feel like you have desires for God, but you know you need something beyond yourself. And you are the walking dead. Well, if any of that describes you, let me encourage you to take this step by just talking to the person who brought you this morning. And ask them about their journey. Ask them about how they received life, received a new heart. Or talk to me. Or talk to one of the elders that are here. We're available after the service. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to answer any questions you have. We'd love to pray for you. We would love to serve you in this way.